Okay, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Have a really special guest this morning. There are, if you're listening to this podcast, you know that my overall opinion of politicians is not particularly high in that I believe that every one of them pretty much does whatever they need to do to get reelected and nothing else. There are a handful of exceptions to this that I've met in the course of my lifetime. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, Barack Obama, uh, Josh Gottheimer, and another one clearly is Congressman Richie Torres from the Bronx. Richie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's an honor to be with you, and that's quite the list. Yeah, no, you're you're now. Now we just got to run you for president. We'll be good. Um, so, uh, and just for the listeners, we had a little bit of a audio mishap this morning. So Richie's calling in uh, on my phone. So if the audio is slightly off, that's that's why. Um, so much I want to talk to you about, and I know your time's limited. So I'm going to jump right into it. Um, in the wake of the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, which is a topic that our listeners are very, very focused on, um, you proposed a bill called the Social Media Bank Run Act that I, I think is, is necessary and smart. What would the bill do? Yeah, so there's a sense in which the Silicon Valley Bank collapse was the first bank run in the age of social media. Um, in 2008, the Washington Mutual, which was the largest bank failure in history, saw the withdrawal of about $16 million in the span of 10 days. By contrast, Silicon Valley Bank saw the withdrawal of $42 billion in the span of a few hours. So the sheer speed of the bank run is unprecedented. And I would submit to you that social media enables financial panic to spread to an extent and on a scale that we've never seen before. And so I have legislation that would require banking regulators to seriously consider social media risk in bank runs. And I have a particular concern about malicious influence operations. You know, I worry about mm -hmm. a concerted effort by a malicious adversary to manufacture financial panic on social media in an attempt to destabilize the American banking system. So what would that, let's assume that the bill, just for sake of argument, makes it all the way through the process. The Federal Reserve and, and the Treasury now have this regulation. What do they specifically then do to both be more aware of potential panics and also be more aware of misinformation that could create a panic that shouldn't exist at all? Well, look, the, the legislation is careful not to micromanage or to be pre too prescriptive, but but, you know, our, our regulators are essentially a gerontocracy, right? None of them have social media savvy. Nope. You know, none of them are thinking about social media risk uh, in the financial system. And so it would require them to consider social media risk. Um, uh, because I think this is going to, we're going to see a repeat of history. Silicon Valley Bank might be only the tip of the iceberg. Right. I mean, it's, it's interesting as someone who my fund had, you know, a decent amount of money sitting in SVB. You could almost see how Twitter dictated our actions in a way that we didn't really want it to, in that we kind of knew that that there probably wasn't a real underlying need to withdraw the money. And Jordan, my partner, and I really tried for a while to, to hold out. Um, and then things just took on such a life of their own that you couldn't be the one idiot that, that didn't ask for your take your money out. And so like everyone else, we, we did, and, and we contributed to the panic. But I really think that without Twitter or, for example, when this first started percolating kind of that Wednesday night, had Twitter noticed the spike in activity and said to the feds, listen, we don't know what this is about, but clearly this seems like something you should keep an eye on. Um, if the feds had been able to even just say something, 
12 hours earlier, it probably would have made a huge difference. I mostly agree with you, but it's, you know, it's worth pointing out that, you know, SVB was an outlier uh, in, in the banking system. You know, as you know, when interest rates rise, long-term assets become less valuable, but deposits become more valuable. Uh, if, if, you, if you have stable deposits, the gains from your deposits should offset the losses from your long-term assets. But if you have no stable deposits, then you have no built-in offset. And it's worth noting that 90% of the deposits at SVB were uninsured. So a case could be made that the uninsured, unstable deposits of Silicon Valley Bank made it singularly susceptible to a bank run in the age of social media. Right. But how do you, so like, you know, as, as one of pretty much every venture capitalist that, that had an account in SVB, um, it, the limit is $250,000. I, I can't even make payroll with that limit after more than one or two cycles. And so how can a business be affected to operate with less than $250,000 in an account? Look, I, I agree with you, and that's, you know, that's why I, I, I came out in favor of the decision to insure the depositors. You know, for me, depositors are different from investors. You know, an investment is money at risk, whereas a deposit is money in safekeeping. And if depositors lose confidence in the safety of their deposits, the whole banking system comes crashing down. But, but we have a serious problem because it's not clear, you know, the, the problem that you lay out, it's not clear what is the solution absent unlimited deposit insurance. Like, I do worry that we are in danger of creating a two-tiered banking system in which you have big banks that have an implicit guarantee of unlimited deposit insurance and therefore are too big to fail. And then you have small banks that have no such guarantee and therefore are too small to succeed. And that would be dangerous for our economy. So that, that's that's a problem that we're going to have to figure out how to solve. So if, if we were, let's say, just to embrace the notion that, you know, we want people to feel comfortable depositing money, that's effectively the money that the whole entire economy runs on. We don't want to discourage that. We don't want to kill small banks. So we're just going to extend this, you know, to everyone. We're going to make it $10 million or some much bigger number. Could you then put other regulations in place to try to make the likelihood of a bank run much lower? So, for example, it used to be that any bank with $50 billion in assets uh, would undergo various types of examinations by the feds. Trump raised that to $250 billion, which is what ended up uh, exempting Silicon Valley Bank because they weren't at 250 and therefore this was never noticed. Or, for example, you talked about kind of uh, long-term interest rates. Um, when, when you buy 10-year treasuries, you don't have to mark them to market, which means that the actual value of your portfolio and the perceived value of your portfolio can be two very different things. And then when that comes out, it sparks panic. Uh, you could require people to mark to market. So what are some regulations that if I just sort of made you king today, we, we got rid of the democratic process that, that you would put in place to make this better? Look, I would, I would be in favor of lowering the threshold for enhanced prudential supervision and regulation from 250 billion to somewhere in the range of 100 billion. But I also think that one of the lessons learned from SVB is that we have to think about risk not only in terms of size, but also in terms of stability of deposit stability. Mm -hmm. uh, and those banks with a higher proportion of uninsured deposits arguably should be subject to more rigorous supervision and regulation. 
Yeah, I mean, look, as someone who, uh, well, it's funny, now I guess my money's in Chase and City and exactly what you said, sort of the, the too big to fail. And the truth is, I'd rather it not be, not because I dislike those banks, they're great New York employers, but there are things specifically that venture capitalists and startups need that makes sense for a small bank to be able to offer that just for Chaser City is just not worth their time to bother with. And so if you said that where I'm putting my money, they'll have to undergo a lot more scrutiny, but therefore my money will be protected and I can feel comfortable depositing it there. I think that's, you know, other than a pain in the ass for the bank, it's kind of a win for everybody, right? It is a win. And, we, you know, we have the best interest in preserving the regional banking system. I mean, the Silicon Valley Bank was systemically important to tech startups in America. Uh, it was providing the kind of customer service that would be hard to come by with the big banks. You know, if, if, if you only have a big banking system, you know, dynamic startups can easily get lost in the shuffle, can easily disappear into the bureaucracy. So it should be a priority for the federal government to preserve a diversified banking system. So, so the, the, the bill, you've introduced it, obviously, Getting anything through the entire Congress is, is a challenge. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're not the only person in Congress talking about various reforms in the wake of SVB. Do you think there will be legislation that makes it through both chambers and signed by the president? And if so, uh, how do you get this provision included? You know, it's hard to know for sure. Um, I see no sense of urgency around legislating on the part of Republicans. Frankly, I've seen more interest in legislating about trans participation in sports than yeah. I've seen interest in legislating about the banking crisis, which tells you everything you need to know about Washington, D.C. Right, right. Um, SVB is so a lot more important to real people in terms of, of the yeah, economy than Bud Light. It's a banking crisis that directly and indirectly affects every household in America. Right. Because capital is the lifeblood of our economy. But, uh, you know, one of the criticisms that I have in D.C. is we, we swing from one extreme to the next. We swing from inertia to overreaction. And we often leave the lawmaking to the regulators, which I think undermines really the spirit of our democracy. I mean, we should be responding to crises like the SVB collapse. Right. So uh, on a similar line, but a far even bigger crisis would be the, the debt ceiling. Um, and it feels like your colleagues on the other side of the aisle are willing to take this thing all the way to, to the very end and, and potentially throw the country to default. It, can that actually happen? And if so, how do we prevent it? Look, as, as shown in 2011, the, the mere threat of a breach, separate and apart from the act itself, could do enormous damage to the economy. Now, you might recall the 2011 game of debt yep. limit brinksmanship yep. led to a downgrade in the credit rating of the United States for the first time in history. And according to the Government Accountability Office, it raised borrowing costs by more than a billion dollars. So even if we never reach the debt, the gamesmanship itself is deeply damaging to the economy. And you know, how can you claim to be a fiscal conservative and then breach the debt limit and default on the obligations of the United States and compromise the full faith and credit of your own country. You know, I have a number of colleagues who have real concerns about the, the strategic threat that China poses to the United States. I often tell my colleagues, our greatest enemy is not China, Russia, North Korea, or Iran. Our greatest enemy is ourselves. Our greatest enemy is the dysfunction of our politics. Yeah, totally. And if we breach the debt limit, 
we're going to do infinitely more damage to our economy than our enemies ever could. So you, you have a, a Republican majority, but it's a very, very small majority. You have a speaker who clearly doesn't have control over his caucus. Um, how does this get fixed? Look, we know from the, you know, Kevin McCarthy went through the humiliation of the longest speaker vote in more than 164 years. He's a captive to the far right of his party. But in the end, he's going to have to land the plane. And there are enough reasonable Republicans to coalesce with Democrats to raise the debt limit. So in, in the end, I do believe we will avoid a default, which is not to say that we will avoid damage. Uh, I worry about a repeat of 2011, that the brinksmanship, brinksmanship itself could be deeply damaging. And I'll make one more point. You know, if we breach the debt limit, it will only raise the cost of borrowing, which will cause us to be more indebted, not less, which is the opposite of what Republicans claim they want. Right. And, and in a world where people's pocketbooks are already hurting because inflation interest rates are both simultaneously high, um, why we would want to do that is, is, is beyond me, other than just pure, pure but, political dysfunction. As, um, as a result of the full faith and credit of the United States and yeah. the, the status of the dollar as the world's reserve currency, we pay less for more. But if we've reached a debt limit, we're going to pay more for less. Right, right. So our credit becomes less valuable. Um, Tech regulation is sort of a big topic on this podcast. I just wanted to hit a couple of them. Just get your take on kind of where you think it will go and where it should go. So the first one that everyone's obviously talking about now 24-7 is artificial intelligence. Um, are there activities underway in Congress to try to figure out what the right regulatory framework should be? And, and how would you regulate it? Look, I, I, we have to be careful not to prematurely regulate AI. Mm -hmm. But what worries me is there's no, first, there are two levels of competition, right? There's the competition among companies within the United States, particularly between Microsoft and AI and Google, DeepMind. Uh, and then there's the broader strategic competition between the United States and, and China. Um, I oppose a pause in AI development because it's not as if China's going to pause. Really, you don't so, need to just be like, just take take your time, figure it out, guys. Whenever you're ready, we'll get back into it. Yeah, but that's right. But what worries me is that there's no communication or coordination. Like it seems like there is a race to create ever larger language models, uh, which could have immense implications for our society. You know, I met with executives at Microsoft and Google a few weeks ago as part of my role in the Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the United States and China. And these executives said to me that our AI models, our large language models, are engaging in emergent behaviors, behaviors that the creators of the models themselves do not understand. And as these models become larger, these models are going to emerge with even more new behaviors. And there's no telling where those emergent behaviors will take us and what implications it will have for our society. And so the government should play a convening role. It should bring Microsoft, OpenAI, Google to, to, to a collective table and set standards for AI safety. You know, and I, and I do think that, you know, like nuclear weapons, AI has the potential to be weapons of mass destruction and in the future should be subject to a non-proliferation regime 
on an international stage. Uh, you know, it's not in the interest of the world to have these models fall into the hands of totalitarian regimes. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, I mean, it's funny to me, up until AI, the trifecta of sort of cataclysmic existential world ending sort of scenarios were nuclear war, uh, a pandemic that is, you know, infinitely more deadly than what we just faced, um, or climate change that goes completely unabated. I think you now have to put AI, you know, onto that list. Uh, the, the good news is, I, I do think that when it comes to that list, the Biden administration is actually on climate, you know, done really, really transformational work, you know, somewhat out of the Congress, somewhat out of the EPA and administrative rulemaking. But, you know, I actually have a small bit of confidence that um, they might be equipped to actually take this thing on. Um, do you see a world where this becomes a real priority for the White House? Uh, AI safety? Yeah. It, should, it, it must be, because it's going to, uh, I mean, not only is it going to affect, not only does it pose an existential risk to humanity, as you rightly point out, but it's going to be, it's going to lie, it lies at the core of strategic competition with China. Um, you know, whoever dominates AI, whoever dominates the field of emerging technologies will, 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 will emerge as the leader of the world. Right. That's that's what I question because AI is, is a foundational technology that's going to radically reshape every aspect of human life, and and the manner in which it's developing defies expectations. You know, I, I remember the original narrative about AI's impact on the workforce. Right, it was widely thought that AI would displace blue collar work. Right, I remember the predictions that truck drivers were going to be displaced in favor of self-driving trucks. Now we're begging for more truck drivers yeah. because of workforce shortages. But it's become clear that white-collar work is singularly susceptible to automation in the age of advanced AI. Uh, along kind of similar lines in terms of sort of regulation. You, you, uh, might, you might have AI members of Congress. You know, uh, they, that, that may not be a bad thing. They may be a little more reasonable than some, some of their that, colleagues. You know, they, AI models can more efficiently aggregate the preferences of voters. Yeah, exactly. And, and AI, George Santos may, may be preferable to... Uh, the, have you ever actually... Have you talked to him yet? Uh, I mean, he despises me. I mean, there's no member of Congress who has been more, more of a tormentor of George Santos than I've been. So <laughs> That's why I asked. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I created the, the Santos Act, the Stop Another Non-Truthful Office Seeker, which I, which I consider to be the greatest acronym in the history of congressional It's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, but you, you have, does he come to the delegation meetings? Do you guys even have delegation meetings still? Uh, it, it, regrettably, we typically, we rarely have delegation meetings, which which reflects poorly on us, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and and when we do convene, it's mostly on a partisan basis. Uh, a few months ago, the governor did meet with every member of the congressional delegation at the same time, except George Santos. He was conspicuously excluded from the meeting. I must so he's, he's persona non grata. I yeah, guess. yeah, yeah, understood. Um, so Fox just settled uh, their lawsuit with Dominion for $787 billion. I think a lot of us, and I, I know that you care a lot about election reform, obviously thought that was a good thing because it will help, you know, prevent future sort of real abuses of misinformation to underline the credibility of elections. But, you know, to me, they weren't the only bad actor here, right? You know, the algorithms from Facebook, Instagram, 
YouTube, TikTok, you know, we're promoting, you know, those mistruths to just as much as Fox News, yet because of Section 230, um, they're completely unaccountable. Um, why should Fox or the New York Times or whoever be held to a much higher standard than the social media platforms that actually have a lot more power and influence? Well, I mean, well, Fox News was the most egregious actor yeah. in aiding and abetting the lies that Donald Trump was telling about the 2020 election. And we know from the disposition that Fox News was privately conceding that Trump had lost the election while leading their voters to believe otherwise publicly. So the cynicism was was poisonous and undeniable. Uh, it's also worth noting, you know, on the subject of AI, AI has the potential to amplify uh, misinformation and disinformation and malinformation on social media, on the internet, by orders of magnitude. So, right. So, w- wouldn't, wouldn't eliminating Section Two Thirty help regulate and prevent that? You know, it's it's a policy that I struggle with because, on one hand, I acknowledge that Section Two Thirty was the cornerstone of the internet, of what of the modern internet. Uh, at mm-hmm. the same time, I do lament what has become of our social media platforms, uh, the role of our social media platforms in degrading our democracy. Um, but I'm not clear that I've, I've, I'm committed to, that I'm convinced that there is a Section 230 reform that would solve these problems without creating a whole Pandora's box of unintended consequences. All right, so that's it's a separate conversation for me to try to convince you of. Um, let's flip to politics. So yesterday, President Biden made his reelection campaign uh, official. So here's my question. You have someone who both um, has really low poll numbers but a pretty long list of accomplishments, some congressional, some administrative, some just kind of management of things like Ukraine. Um, how strong these days is the correlation between poll numbers like job approval and then actually, you know, re-election itself? My view is that in an age of hyperpolarization, poll approval ratings have less informative value. Uh, because in a polarized political environment, there's a ceiling on how popular you can become. Like if you're a Democratic president, then most Republicans, by definition, will despise you. And if you're a Republican president, most Democrats, by definition, will despise you. You know, we live in, you know I think of American politics as religiosity without religion. Uh, if you disagree with me, you're not merely wrong, but you're evil. Yep. And you should be burned at the stake for heresy. Yep. And half the country sees Joe Biden as evil, simply because he's a Democrat regardless of what he's actually done. And part of the problem here is 24-7 cable news, social media, everything the president done is, is under scrutiny and is demonized by his political adversaries. Um, but if you actually take a step back, you know, Joe Biden governed in the aftermath of January 6th in a period of peak polarization and partisanship. And yet, despite the partisanship, he has built one of the most productive and one of the most productively bipartisan presidencies in recent history. You have the bipartisan gun safety legislation, the bipartisan infrastructure legislation, the bipartisan scientific research and development legislation with a particular focus on semiconductors. Uh, You have historic investments in clean energy. Uh, So by any metric, uh, Joe Biden has been a prolific president who merits reelection you know, when I've, at, when I've been asked about uh, President Biden seeking re-election, I will readily concede that it, it's hardly ideal 
to have an 80-year-old run for re-election as president. But he is the best hope for defeating Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, both of whom I consider to be profound threats to our liberal democracy. If you had to handicap the Republican primary between Trump and DeSantis, what's your guess as to where it goes? You know, DeSantis is the only Republican candidate who has a fighting chance of defeating Trump, but he shows signs of fading. Um, I've long felt that DeSantis is overrated, you know, even though he's been effective at building a profile in Florida. He always struck me as insufferably stiff yep. and stilted, and, and I thought he would fear poorly under the scrutiny of the presidential campaign, on the campaign trail. You know, say what you will about Donald Trump. He may be a sociopath, but he is a brilliant retail politician. Yep. Uh, he has palpable charisma on the campaign trail, and and DeSantis is simply lacking it, and 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 it's I think he's self-destructing in real time. Yeah, for for sure. So if Trump, if it's Trump Biden, especially now in the world after Dobbs, do you see a world where Trump wins that matchup? No, uh, uh, although you know we were wrong in two thousand. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. many of us were wrong in two thousand sixteen. So right. We might be repeating history, but. Right. But I'm convinced that the country has overwhelming Trump fatigue. Yeah, they don't want him. And, and everyone thought that we would have a red wave in the 2022 election. And instead, we saw nothing more than a red triple. And for me, the lesson learned from 2022 is that the American people punish extremism and dysfunction, which Trump embodies. You know, were it not for January 6th, were not for the reversal of Roe versus Wade, the Republicans might have had a traditional red wave election. Right. But the red wave was reduced to a red trickle by the Trump effect on the Republican Party. So he is a net harm to the Republican Party in a general election. Right. And then let's say that DeSantis does win the primary. What are the odds that Trump just says, okay, I lost fair and square, no problem. Every Republican go out and vote for DeSantis. He's going to say it was stolen from him. He'll be offered third-party lines in different states, he might take them, at least states that don't have the sort of loser laws. Um, it, it seems like inevitable that if this, if Trump is the nominee, there's huge Trump fatigue. If Trump is not the nominee, um, then he's going to undermine whoever is. So I, I, I think that, you know, while having what seems like a fairly unpopular octogenarian president is not ideal, like you said, um, I'd still rather be the Democrats than the Republicans here. Look, I will speak bluntly. We as Democrats are not winning elections. Republicans are losing elections. And the Republican Party is losing because it's allowed itself to become a cult of personality around Donald Trump. Like, Donald Trump is convinced that he is the savior of America. He's the one and only person who can govern America and lead the Republican Party. And you're right. If he loses the primary, he is going to be an arsonist who's going to burn down everything around him, including his own party, especially his own party. Right. So the, the thing that I tell myself to sleep better at night, when, when you mentioned before, like, hey, we all thought in 2016 Trump couldn't win, and he did. So the two key differences to me is, one, um, Biden, while obviously not super popular, you know, he's just sort of a non-entity in many ways. He's not sort of individually despised on a visceral level in the way that Hillary Clinton was. So he, he doesn't have quite her negatives. And abortion went from something that was a right that was at risk 
um, to a right that has been taken away. Uh, and that clearly was a huge factor in the 2020 midterms that resulted in the red trickle instead of the red wave. Um, you agree or, or am I just telling myself things to sleep better? I'm inclined to agree with you, but you never know. Um, but, you know, Biden has the most important virtue in politics at the moment, which is normalcy. Um, I think people have real Trump fatigue. There's an allergy to extremism. And Joe Biden, for all his, for all his imperfections, is, is deservedly well positioned to win re-election. Uh, deservedly because he has had a productive presidency, at least from my standpoint. Yeah, agreed. So one last question, I'm going to just focus locally on, on New York and then I'll let you go, which is, you know, there's this sort of like almost these two New Yorks, right? There's the New York that we live in that is, is certainly not perfect by any means, but doesn't feel like Mad Max either. Um, and then there's the New York of, of the New York Post and, and the tabloids and sort of, you know, seemingly the national perception, which makes it seem like we're back in 1975. Um, you know, you obviously think a lot about these issues and you see them firsthand. What's the reality of it in your view? And why is there such sort of a, a cognitive dissonance here? The, 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 the truth is somewhere in between. Um, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly the case that crime is much higher and that people feel less safe in the wake of COVID-19. Uh, you know, New York continues to struggle to fully recover from the legacy of COVID-19, not only in the subject of public safety, but elsewhere it, you know, when it comes to public transit, when it comes to the commercial real estate market, when it comes to every area of life in New York City. At the same time, you know, the, the apocalyptic narrative in the New York Post is deeply misleading. You know, in, in, in 1990, when I was two, there were about 2,000 murders in New York City. Right? Last year, there were somewhere in the range of 400. So has there been a rise in crime? Yes. But is the rise in crime, does it remotely resemble the crime wave of the 1990s? Not even close. Yeah. And so I wish that we were more nuanced and measured uh, in how we describe what is happening in New York. But anyone who underestimates New York does so at its own peril. Uh, it remains the greatest city on earth. It has the greatest institution, the greatest density and diversity of talent. What is desperately needed and, and, and sorely lacking is a politics that is worthy of the city's greatness. Yeah. And it's funny, you, you, you mentioned just now sort of nuance, I think, actually sums up the episode perfectly because it's the lack thereof that led to many ways to the SVB bank panic. It's the lack thereof um, that is leading to heading us at least towards a default, although I, I, I think you're right, we'll eventually avert it. It's why our politics are so brutal and polarized and nasty. And it's even why perceptions of New York and reality and perceptions of New York, you know, in, in people's heads uh, are really different. So I guess maybe that's the key point here, which is, you know, we need to get back to a world where people are actually thoughtful and balanced and not wildly partisan or ideological. And Reggie, you're one of the very few people I know who actually both says that and then actually embodies it. So congratulations. No, I, I appreciate that. And you know, like banking and politics, uh, perception becomes reality. You know, banking is as much about psychology as it is about finance. It's all about confidence. And the success of a city like New York is about confidence. Absolutely. Uh, so for our listeners who, and I think more on the tech side, probably on the political side, 
who don't know your work as well. What's the best way for people to follow you, reach your office, all that kind of stuff? Uh, you know, people can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, you know, Richie Torres, Richie with a T. Uh, I was named after Richie Valance, so my name has a unique spelling. But I would encourage people to pay attention to what I do in Congress because uh, I'm an idiosyncratic member, for good and for ill. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why we like you. Richie Torres, thanks for joining us. A pleasure to be here.